right, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. I am Dean, if you if this is your first time joining us. And tonight we have a very heavy subject, something that is near and dear to my heart as a first responder. We are going to be discussing the uptick in first responder suicides to include police officers, firefighters, EMS, and of course, dispatchers as well. Tonight, we have a very special guest. We have the president and CEO of, of First Help, Miss Karen Solomon. Karen, how you doing? Hey, good, Dean. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for taking the time out to join us. This is a show that I've wanted to do for quite some time. It's near and dear to my heart. And um, if you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and what brings you here tonight, that would be, uh, be great. Sure. Yep. So as you said, my name is Karen Solomon. I am one of the co-founders and the president of First Help. We were formerly known as Blue Help. We've expanded to include all first responders. So we're a nonprofit organization. We raise awareness about law of first responder suicide and we help the families in the aftermath. We do a lot of resiliency and prevention training and just really try to move the needle when it comes to changing the culture so that first responders can get the help they need and their families have the support they need. Uh, after a suicide and hopefully enough support before so that we don't have the suicide. So our goal is to not be here next time because we want to stop suicide. That's a heck of a goal. So what made you start this or, or you and your co-founder? What 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 was the, the reasoning behind getting this this very needed organization started? Yeah, so that's a it's a kind of a weird little story that we um we, we certainly didn't set this as a goal. We, what happened was after the incidents in Ferguson, my husband's been a police officer for 26 years now, and the whole Ferguson situation and the negative rhetoric towards law enforcement was very frustrating for myself and my family. So I wrote a book called Hearts Beneath the Badge just to kind of to, to explain to people how officers are human too and they do good things and and we really shouldn't dislike them so much and that led to a second book called the price they pay which i wrote with co-founder jeff mcgill and that was a collection of stories about officers who suffered on the job compassion fatigue emotional injuries physical injuries and really the lack of support that they got after their injuries and and we also wrote about people who, who died by suicide so that kind of led to us saying why isn't anybody paying attention to suicide so we, we started this page we said we're going to make an officer down memorial page for suicide we're going to honor these officers lives because there's no reason to shame them in their death after they've served their communities very well and it's just morphed into this organization where we are doing a lot more than just honoring officers. We're supporting their families. We're preventing suicide. So it, it, it was kind of a snowball. Well, it, it, you know, I, for one, am very thankful for you and for, for even even going down this road. I, I know it couldn't have been easy. What are some of the challenges you faced uh, when you first rolled out uh, this organization? Oh, there was a lot a lot of challenges. So we started this January 1st, 2016. So if you think back six years, nobody was talking about suicide. There was no data collected year over year. Nobody wanted to talk about it. People told us we couldn't talk about it. We shouldn't talk about it. Uh, we brought families to Police Week in 2019 to honor their loved ones because they, they went there when they were alive and there was no reason not to go when they were they were gone, even though it was a suicide. And we were told we didn't belong there. So so we, we it was a really it was an uphill battle. The stigma associated with this was just tremendous and, and nobody wanted to talk about it. Why so, were you told that you didn't belong there? 
Um, because Police Week, there's a perception that Police Week is to honor the fallen, the her heroes. And the belief is that if you died by suicide, you are not a hero. You are not heroic. Uh, you shouldn't be honored. So, so, but if you read the Police Week proclamation, and this is something that I've preached since day one, the Police Week proclamation doesn't end at honor those who died in the line of duty. It says, and those who were injured in the line of duty. But that is often left out of Police Week information. Um, the, the original proclamation clearly states, and those injured. So that, to me, is physically and emotionally injured. But if you go to Police Week, you will see that it is primarily about the dead or the living, and there's no in-between. So so that was where we kind of first put a stake in the ground, and we mm -hmm. had a huge display at the memorial of all faces of people who died by suicide. And um, it was tough. It was tough. But the families were unbelievably grateful. Um, it was it was amazing. But we, like I said, it was really an uphill battle because people weren't ready to change their minds about it yet. Nobody was ready to talk about it. And now you see there's been a tremendous change. Very much so. And and, and to your point, um, overnight almost too. You know, in, in the world of policing, you know what I mean? Like a five-year span is essentially overnight. If you talk about the, the history of, of policing going back to, say, like, you know, like Sir Robert Peel and, mm -hmm. and back in those days, whereas, um, you know, leaders of organizations are embracing mental health um uh, treatment and mental mental health days and making sure that people have outlets to discuss um you know critical incidents making sure that they have um, this critical critical incident uh, teams that you can bring in to debrief your staff when they when when you have uh you know some of those unthinkable type calls so yeah you're 100 right yeah, and I think part of it too is, you know, the de it has to be more than a debrief. And this was one of the things I, you know, is also, and we all were concerned about in the beginning. So you have this debriefing, but that that's pretty meaningless three months down the road. You have to have mm -hmm. stress management. And that means more than just the debrief a week later. You need to take a look three months later, six months later. How is everybody doing? How are they affected? Because quite often the, the effects of an incident don't show up immediately or they stuff it down and, and try to hide it. So, so that was was a big deal too because that's expanded over the years as well because it was just this hey let's have a debrief let's check in and now it's a lot more than that there's a lot more um um you know peer support there's more long-term care yeah. there's you know all that stuff that's going on now and I, and i think that over the last six years it's really um it's to, to me having been involved in this I am amazed at the change in the culture that we've had. Still not enough, but more than I ever expected. It's it's great. Well, that's that's it's unbelievable. So I'm going to hit the chat really quick. So um, first of all, Mike wants to welcome you to the show, and Heidi wants to ask, what programs and tools are you offering to prevent first responder suicide? Sure. So we have what's called the uh, Responder Readiness Courses, and this is funded in partnership with FirstNet, AT&T, and it is Responder Readiness, Family Readiness, and Supervisor Readiness. There are three separate classes that talk about resilience and how we can be prepared as families, how first responders can be prepared, how to start the conversation. So we have that training. We have mission-ready retreats that first responders can go to, also funded by FirstNet, AT&T. 
it's completely 100% free, all expenses paid to take first responders away for a week, kind of get them um, talking, learning some tools, coping tools. We have a lot of that. We also refer people out to a lot of different resources. There are so many amazing organizations and people out there teaching and training and, and doing suicide prevention. So we have that. Uh, you know, that's not ours, but we refer you out. So if, if you can't make it to one of our trainings, if you can't make it to our retreat, we certainly can tell you somebody in your area that can help you out. So there's a lot of stuff out there. And we, like I said, we're not the catch-all, but we can certainly help people find what they need. But what we personally do is we do a lot of resiliency training. All right. Well, let me ask you this just to clarify. So the retreats that you send people on, is that for people that have um, experienced traumatic incidents or is that for anybody even before um, they get to that uh, that tipping point, so to speak? Any first responder. Any first, Any first responder. <clears throat> yep. So because you want to get there before you get to the tipping point. Because if you, you if it's before the event, when the event happens, then you have the tools to cope with it. And then you are able to move on from that incident much more quickly had you not had those tools. So we would prefer you get there before an incident. Obviously, if you've had an incident and you, you are having issues, you should get help. And whether it's this retreat or not, we can work on that with you to figure that out but it's for any first responder in any stage of their career all right well that's it thank you for clearing that up folks if you're just tuning in i'm here with karen solomon and we are discussing uh, uh first responder suicide and that includes again police firefighters ems and of course our lifelines which are our dispatches so if you are on facebook please jump in in the chat youtube linkedin Please jump in the chat, ask your questions while we have Karen here. So our next question that we have is, uh, Karen, what's your feeling on being open about police suicides with each respective department, particularly those that have lost an officer to suicide? Should departments be up front from the beginning or gauge the family dealing with the loss? So that's very easy. That is the, the department should work with the family. A suicide is a different kind of death. So, um, a line of duty death, it becomes very public immediately. And I, I do know that there are some line of duty families who, who didn't want that. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, we believe we, we, we believe that we somehow own first responders and they're part of our family. And when one of them dies in the line of duty, we want to give something back to them and honor them, right? So it becomes very public. Uh, suicide is very personal. Uh, many times the families either witness the death or they find their first responder after the death. It's a different kind of loss. So we don't want to just go public with it. And it's also because of the stigma in society, it's not necessarily the right thing to do. Many families will come forward right away and say, here's what happened, do better, be better, don't, don't die by suicide. Some families aren't ready for a very, very long time to talk about it publicly and they don't want it to be known publicly. There are families who will put something else in the obituary or they will be very vague because they just don't want to talk about it. We had a, a family that her son died by suicide and she didn't even tell her neighbors. And she joined our support group. She joined our family, so to speak. And about a year and a half in, she called me up and she said, you know, I'm finally ready to talk about it. She said, you guys gave me the courage to talk about this. Seeing other families came, come forward, gave me the courage to talk about this. So I want to tell people now that Aaron died by suicide. I want to talk about it. So every single family is different. Every situation is different. So you absolutely should take guidance from the family. But what you shouldn't do 
is you should not change the way you treat that family after a suicide. You treat them the same that you would treat a line of duty, a cancer, any other off-duty death. They are entitled to off-duty honors. They are entitled to be told what benefits they will be losing, what they will and won't get. They were entitled to have some kind of support from the department. So, so that you should not change because they are going to need your support and they're going to be afraid to ask for it. Karen, so can I just have you circle back, uh, talk a little bit about the benefits that they will or will not get. Uh, a lot of folks don't realize that it depends how, you know, how you pass away uh, while you're on the job, what type of benefits you're entitled to. So if you could just touch upon that a little bit. Yeah. And that's something I couldn't believe people don't know about. So, and it, this is, this is, I am just stating a fact. I'm not passing any judgment. If someone dies in the line of duty, they get an automatic federal death payout. This year's death payout is $380,000, $387,000. And every year it changes, it increases um, incrementally with, you know, inflation and stuff. So, so God forbid my husband dies in the line of duty. I get $387,000 from the federal government right out of the gate. I get his full pension for life. I get benefits for life. That's education for my kids, education for myself, health insurance for myself, health insurance for my kids. I get, living in Massachusetts, I get another $300,000 death payout. I would walk away with almost $2 million in cash and benefits after my husband, God forbid, dies in the line of duty. And that's not to include the fundraisers that people have and the tunnels to tower paying off your mortgage and everything. Now, God forbid my husband dies by suicide, I will get nothing. They will shut off his benefits the day he dies, and I will get absolutely nothing. My husband's been on the job for 26 years, so I would still get some of his pension, whatever he would be entitled to at the time of his death. But many families, they're either not on the job long enough, so they don't get anything. But if their husband was on the job for a year and died in the line of duty, they would get everything. We have families with kids that they are not told they'd be losing their benefits that show up at the hospital with their kids sick and they say, you don't have any health insurance anymore. So shame on us for, for treating them so poorly and not telling them. So essentially, there's a huge gap now. That's changed over the past six years, just like everything else. So in some states, you are now entitled to benefits. You saw Chicago now passed a law. Ohio Police yeah. and Fire, they have a um, police union, police and fire union. If you pay into this particular union, you will get, if you have to fight for it, and you have to prove that the suicide was tied to the job, you can get it. So everything that you get for suicide, you actually have to fight for and prove. Now, line of duty, it's cut and dry. So line right. of duty, and line of duty, don't get me wrong, line of duty is heart attack, heat stroke, slip and fall. There's 22 different causes of line of duty death, but it's it's a presumption of the job. So um, the suicide is not. So we are currently waiting for President Biden to sign the Public Safety Officer Benefit of Act of 2022. And if he passes that, some first responders will now qualify for that one-time federal death payout. But it is just the one-time federal death payout. It is not any insurance or anything. They're still not going to go on the wall in D.C. They're still not going to be honored and involved in these other events because it's just a federal. You're still going to have to fight for your city and state. But this is a huge step forward because it's going to open the floodgates now. It's going to say, yes, we, we finally figured out suicide is absolutely could be caused by this job. And we are going to support those families because they gave their life, their service to this job and they deserve it. See, it's funny. It's funny. You mentioned that not funny in the haha sense, just uh, ironic, I guess that you mentioned that because just like we spoke about earlier, where mental health is now a conversational point in, in most law enforcement uh, buildings. Whereas yeah. when I first started, 
18 years ago, even even maybe even 10 years ago, was the type of thing where it was kind of like just don't talk about it. Like you know, you just kind of you know you go to a bad scene, uh, you may, maybe something kind of gruesome or or something like that, and and you just kind of stuff it in, and and you just you're expected to just go and finish your shift. Whereas nowadays, um, you know, I I know that uh, even there's been times where I have maybe address somebody during shift and if i and if we didn't think that they were um still ready to be out there we you know we 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 told them it's okay to not be okay and you can yeah not go back out and and, and handle you're not letting anybody down if you don't go back out there well that, that that's so that's a that's a that's a good um talking point right there so um not going back out there so and, and i use this example all the time the year my mother died my mother died my stepfather died it was a really bad year for me and i like literally broke down one day at work and i said i i have to go home i'm having a mental breakdown i need a couple weeks off sure karen go ahead you have vacation time you have personal time go now imagine being a first responder going hey i i'm having a breakdown everybody in my family just died i need to go home for a couple weeks they're gonna look at you like you're nuts like you you can't just take police and people off the street and and it's not that easy for you. It's easy mm-hmm. for people in the private sector, but what's also not easy for you is um, you still have to go to the next call. So we had some officers, you know, you witness somebody in your department get shot and killed and you still got to finish your shift. That's insane. How, how, how do you do that? You know what I'm saying? So, so there's so many differences between the way first responders have to function and the way we as non-first responders function. And, and obviously we have a little easier time of it because we are, you know, we're considered regular people with feelings and, and you guys aren't not for anything, but again, it's changing. It's, it's definitely changing. And there are departments that will say, Hey, you can go home now. Um, there are departments have these amazing wellness programs in place, but we're, we're still a long way off from getting there. A, a long way off for sure. A long way off. hundred percent is, um, is, is where we are. I, I, um, I just a really quick story. I, uh, at one point, like I, you know, I went to a call and it was the, uh, the death of, of a child and it was, um, you know, I, I had to finish my shift as a long, as a long short of it. Yeah. So I had to, you know, process the scene, write the report and I was expected to go back out and finish my shift. And, um, I'm not so sure, uh, in today's world that uh, a lot of departments would, uh, would, would continue to do that. So, um, you know, just a quick story there about how time times have changed for the better. So, absolutely. Th- go go ahead on. I, this, I'm just I'm just looking at the chat as we go here. Yeah. So no, I, I absolutely agree, and I think um, there's been so many studies done that show you know heart rates of first responders throughout their shift, how quickly they go up and down, and how they never quite go back down because you're always on on, and just as you're decompressing, you're going to the next call. So so that's something that I think has also influenced this. It's the physiology involved with this because it's not just an emotional thing, you know. And, and I believe that's probably one of the reasons why you have the heart pill, like here in Massachusetts, you can go out on the heart pill. Uh, a heart attack is considered line of duty death if mm-hmm. you know within 24 hours of certain things happening so there's a lot involved it's not just your emotions it's the body that's that's and i believe that finally making that connection and doing it so publicly enabled people like you know to be able to take some time off after a call or not finish the shift when they need to well that's yeah it, it's 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 a much needed change i'm just looking at don's comment here it says all military services will uh discharge you will discharge you if you report ptsd 
So I'm not, I'm going to tell you, I, I, I'm not sure I agree with that. I'm not in the military, but I do know that the military is light years ahead of first responders, law enforcement, especially in terms of how they treat their mental health and how they honor their suicides. And there's so many info, there's so many other organizations out there that are supporting this and they have different rules and regulations in place. So, so I'm not sure what particular service um, he's talking about, but I do know that they, they have gotten a lot better at this. Is but what I, you're I, talking about, is it branch specific or are you just saying as a whole military? As a whole military, you know, and, and I can't speak for different units and different branches specifically because I'm sure there are some kind of guidelines and, and that, that brings up another issue. You know, what are the guidelines for not allowing you to come back to work after you have an emotional issue or bringing you back? You know, I, I was speaking to a first responder and she had had issues and she said, you know, I am absolutely able to do my job again once I feel better. And why shouldn't I? And she's right. You know, so so there's got to be uh, protocol and guidelines in place. And again, I can't really speak too much to the military, um, but but I do know they, there's definitely still some issues, but they, they have better protocol in place than we do in law enforcement right now. So as you talk about that, I will say that, you know, one of the things that I think makes it more difficult to say, I'll say law enforcement, for example, is the fact that you carry weapons. Absolutely. And when you carry these weapons and though we, you know, we, you're trained in them and, and all that, but how do you make sure somebody's in a, in the right emotional state of mind once they come forward with something like this? So yeah. let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. And so that's a hot topic, whether Very or not first responders should take their guns home, law enforcement should take their guns home. Um, are they doing it because they have access to their weapons? Uh, I've heard stories of people who would freeze their husband's weapons uh, in, in a bucket because he, he, by the time you chipped away to get it, you're, you're thinking how ridiculous this is and you're not going to take your life, you know? I mean, people come up with these weird ways to, and I'm not suggesting that anybody hide the guns or touch your husband's guns, please don't. Um, but it was just an interesting um, roundtable one of the conversations, but, but the bottom line is first responders, law enforcement have access to guns and people, they, they, the perception is they become a liability. So if you have an emotional issue, you're erratic, you're more likely to shoot yourself or somebody. So there is that fit for duty thing that we can go right. through. There's all kinds of other stuff. And again, there's not really a lot of guidelines other than the fit for duty, which is the extreme end of how to get somebody well and get them on the job. And there is actually a medication list that approved medications you can take as a law enforcement officer. So if you are a law enforcement officer and you are depressed or you're taking meds and somebody tells you sh you should be off the job because of it, you can look at this list and it will tell you that you're okay to, to do your job on these meds because it's just helping you with your mood and whatnot. Um, but I don't want to get too far off topic, but the bottom line is I don't have those answers and I don't really think anybody does because especially with the culture in America with gun violence and mass shootings, how do we, God forbid, um, it, it, it's some, you know, recent, okay. So for instance, an officer died recently, uh, suicide by cop. He, he was suicidal. He took his gun, he went out, um, and he was aiming his weapon at other officers and they ended up shooting him. So, so that could be a classic case against taking your guns home. You know what I mean? So it's, it's just such a complicated issue. I don't think anybody has the answer for that. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's a tif it's a difficult answer because I would think in most states, you know, here, you know, I've worked in, I've been a police officer in two different states, and both of them, if you are licensed to carry on as a police officer, you can buy your own guns. 
So you, whether or not you take your gun from work home or not is inconsequential. That's, uh, I mean, all right, so I leave this gun here and I go home and get, you know, one of the guns I own and, and, and we're in the same boat. And how many so, people do you really know that have one gun? How many cops have one gun? Um, <laughs> yeah, not not many. Most most at least have have an off duty carry. Exactly. Um, if if for no other reason, just in case uh, you run into somebody who uh, who didn't like a result of a call you were at, whether that means you had to arrest them or you had to um, have them you know sectioned into a hospital or something like that. that I mean that happens. And then of course there's always the whole um, you know like being a trained person. It's hard to, I mean, like when you go out to eat with your husband, where does he sit? Oh, Facing yeah. the door, right? Yeah, yeah, Facing the door. Well, you know, like yeah. my, you know, like my family, they know, you know, if there's a seat that's facing the door, they know that I'm, I'm not even, don't even bother sitting there. That's my seat. And you know how many times lot... I've been stranded in the grocery store because he saw somebody, so he went and hid in the car because <laughs> you know, he doesn't want him to know me, you know? Yeah, yeah, and that, yeah. and those are the things, and those are extra stresses that we live with as, yeah. as, um, as first responders that. Um, the average person would have no idea what it's like to live like that um, from day to day. Uh, so, Karen, we're down to about five minutes. I just want to um, address the chat one more time. Yep. So Mike says, with staffing shortages and or this do more with less mentality, how do we get better at minimizing continuous traumatic exposures? Is it practical? Yeah, no. I mean, if, if we're doing more with less staffing shortages it's not practical it's not going to happen you're you're probably going to experience more calls more traumatic experiences but what you can do that is practical is prepare yourself and and not just prepare yourself for resiliency learn resiliency tools learn breathing skills learn how to communicate with other people learn to recognize signs in other people but go home make a list of resources in your area so that god forbid you need them or somebody you know needs them so that you're prepared because the last thing you want to do when you're in a crisis is scramble looking for help because you're going to end up in the wrong place or you're going to be too nervous and you're not going to be able to find the right kind of help so prepare yourself with a list of what you think you would need in case of some kind of an emotional emergency and prepare yourself so that you don't get that far down that path so that you learn resiliency you learn coping skills you talk to somebody and trust somebody and trust that they are going to listen to you uh, that's one of the biggest challenges we all face, right? Is somebody taking us seriously and us opening our hearts to somebody else and being afraid of what they're going to think of us. So Michael, if you are struggling and somebody doesn't want to listen to you and they don't want to talk to you and they don't want to take you seriously, that is not a reflection on you. That is a reflection on them. And you just move on and you find somebody else because there are plenty of people who are out there who will support first responders and who will listen to you and who understand what you're going through. So that's my answer. No, oh, that's a fantastic answer. So as we get down to it here, Karen, tell us, I know you got a lot going on and I know that September is a big month for you. Tell us a little bit about what's on your plate and, uh, and what we can expect out of first help. Sure. So September is suicide awareness month, suicide prevention month. And we have, uh, days at the end of the month for law enforcement, firefighter, telecommunications, and EMS suicide awareness days. We have walks around the country throughout the month. We have our annual honor dinner where we fly families at absolutely no cost that lost a family of first responders suicide. We give them a special weekend with other families, events, gifts, and honor dinner. Um, and just some of the services we offer, because we didn't mention it, is we do offer college scholarships for kids who lose a first responder to suicide. We send out care packages to the families in the department after a suicide. We have retreats for them. 
them. We just had Camp April this past June, uh, July. It was amazing where we brought 20 families with kids. There was 65 people total to a retreat in Missouri and they had a wonderful weekend, all expense paid. So we are really blessed to have some great supporters in Motorola and FirstNet uh, that help us with these programs so we can serve the first responders we lose to suicide. So September is a big month for us because we have all the walks, we have the dinner. Um, it's, it's just a great, it's a great month to get out there and talk to people and open the conversation about suicide. So make sure you do it. You said that so emphatically, like you, you got me ready to run down and run through a wall for you. You know, that that's um that's something. So what I will do is I will make sure that I replay this episode during that week. Uh, I, I plan to, uh, to stay in touch with you. Can you give us some of the locations? I mean, I'm, I'm here in Massachusetts. Um, do you know offhand of anything you have that's live here in Massachusetts? Braintree. Uh, August 28th, we have a walk. Then in September, we have a golf tournament for Mass State Trooper. Uh, we have an officer who just reached out to us. He So Braintree, we have our walk. We usually get about 300 people. We have a golf tournament in September. We just had an officer in Massachusetts reach out to us. He wants to walk from New York border to the Cape to, for uh, in honor of us. So that'll be something cool. He's probably going to walk right by you, actually, Stoughton. Um yeah, so we have a couple of things going on coming up in Mass that I'm going to get you to so we can meet you in person. Yeah, that that would be great. I, I uh, sept, uh, August 28th? August 28th in Braintree, yeah, at so the high school. Is, okay, I think that is a Sunday, I believe, it is. right? Okay. All right, yeah, so we can talk a little bit you more about that. You can church to go talk about suicide prevention. God will what's, let you. you what's that? Church. You can skip church that day. All right, folks, you hear that. All right, the Karen says it's okay, so... That, that must be what it takes to, 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 to be right with whoever you pray to. So, Karen, we're up on time. You know, I, I got to say thank you so much. This, this half hour flew by. This has been uh, there's been a lot of great information here. How can people reach out to you? How can people find you really quick? Yeah, absolutely. Firsthelp.org. One S-T, the number one S-T, first help help.org and from there you can link to all of our pages and you can see the work we do you can see videos of our events you can see the people we've lost to suicide so just go to our website all right karen this has been outstanding thank you so much for taking time away from your family uh for being here folks if you like this episode or if you know somebody who could benefit from the content of this episode please like our pages on our social media Please follow us and please share these episodes. People need to hear these conversations. They're just so, so important. So, folks, that's going to do it here from Supply of the Y tonight. Stay with us, and we'll be back on with a live episode very soon. Have a great night, everybody, and always hashtag Supply of the Y.